Welcome to the Givology Impact Series podcast, in which we share the experiences and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and change makers around the world in education. I am Joyce Meng, your host for today from Givology. We are delighted to have Willie Oppenheim from Omprakash join us for today. Willie is an educator, a researcher, and the leader of a social enterprise working to make international volunteering more ethical and impactful. Willie came up with the initial idea for Om Prakash at the age of 18 after serving as a volunteer English teacher in northern India in 2004. The basic premise was to create a platform connecting volunteers with social impact opportunities around the world. He then attended Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, where he completed a self-designed major in religion, education, and anthropology. In 2009, he received a Rhodes Scholarship and went on to earn his doctorate in education from Oxford University. His PhD research focused on demand for girls' schooling in rural Pakistan. His broader research interests concerned the way in which ideas and norms pertaining to justice and development are produced and contested through formal and informal processes of education. Willie has worked in classrooms in the United States, India, Pakistan, and China, and in the wilderness as a faculty member of the National Outdoor Leadership School. He currently teaches at the University of Washington and continues to lead Om Prakash's newest initiative, Om Prakash Edge, which is an online pre-departure volunteer training program intended to help university students enrich their international learning and impact. When not engaged in his teaching, his educational research or his leadership of Om Prakash, Willie enjoys rock climbing, telemark skiing, playing guitar, and baking bread. Welcome, Willie, to our podcast series. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, Joyce, thank you so much for having me. And I must say, um, uh, thank you for breathing out my very lengthy bio. Uh, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. Oh, you've done so many interesting things. Um, we'd love to hear more. Can you talk a little bit about some of the key accomplishments of Om Prakash over the last decade? Sure, I would love to. Um, I mean, rather than frame it as like about accomplishments per se, I think it might just make sense for me to uh, elaborate a little bit on the introduction you've already given. So you said that, you know, I founded Om Prakash uh, with the intention of connecting individuals with social impact projects around the world, and that's, uh, that's accurate. Um, but just to give a little more context for that, um, really, you know, the growth of Om Prakash uh, was inspired by my own experience as a teenager, being someone who really was, wasn't that interested in school and wanted to find an, uh, some kind of opportunity to volunteer abroad, and I was really frustrated to find that when I searched the Internet, everything that came up was within this same paradigm of um, highly structured sort of chaperoned, expensive group trip where there's a middleman placement organization that's basically selling a prepackaged volunteer experience. And I was thinking, why is it so hard to connect directly with organizations on the ground? Uh, there was something that seemed very inauthentic to me and really disempowering to me and to the various uh, organizations that were out there. It, it felt sort of frustrating and disempowering that we weren't able to connect directly. So... I did end up finding an opportunity to teach in North India in 2004, as you noted, um, without going through any middleman uh, service and without paying any program fee, but just connecting directly with a school. And I had a wonderful experience, and at the end of that, um, I thought, oh, well, I'd like to help that school recruit more volunteers, you know, directly by their own volition and not have volunteers kind of sent to them. 
uh, or place with them. So I, and I had visited a few other schools that also expressed interest in that. So I created this website um, called Omprakash, and at that point it was about half a dozen organizations in India which were listed there. And at that time I didn't think that this would be a uh, – certainly didn't think it would be something I was still excited about and talking about 13 years later. But meanwhile, the network has grown to be about 170 organizations in 40 countries. Uh, these organizations use our website not just to recruit volunteers and interns, but also as a fundraising platform. They've raised nearly $6 million, um, and we've helped them connect with thousands of volunteers. Uh, we've also partnered with a number of universities to help these universities build their own uh, international internship and service learning programs that are dramatically more affordable and, in our view, much more ethical and impactful than the dominant paradigm, precisely because they're founded on those real authentic relationships between people and organizations rather than sort of a, a prepackaged kind of volunteerism model. Um, so that's sort of a broader overview. I suppose you could say all of that um, is sort of accomplishments that, that we're proud of, um, and I'd be happy to elaborate on any of that. Great. No, that's, uh, that's really incredible. And today's podcast series, you know, goes along the theme of trying to understand how different organizations measure impact. When you think about Om Precaution, the work that it's delivered, what are some of the key qualitative and quantitative metrics that you use to assess whether you're meeting your mission? That's a great question. Um, so there's it really there's a wide range of different things that we can measure, um, and I'll talk about those in a moment. But as uh, a mentor of mine once said with regard to educational research more broadly, and I should say as an aside that fundamentally I think of Omprakash uh, as an educational organization. Um, but though, as this mentor once said to me, you know, because we cannot uh, measure what we care about, we end up just caring about what we can measure. And his point was with reference to uh, the sort of over – uh, fetishization of standardized test scores and so on and so forth in education, but I think that's really a, a um, important point more broadly, and so I think about that quite often, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment, but so to start with, I can tell you the easy things to measure. Uh, we look at the growth of our network in terms of total number of partners, partner organizations, volunteers, and donors. Uh, we look at the, amount, the number of uh, applications that volunteers submit to our partners and the number of uh, you know, the frequency with which partners accept those applications, because that is a pretty good indicator of sort of the quality of volunteer traffic. Uh, in other words, if we had thousands of volunteers coming to the site and applying to work with our partners, but partners never accepted their applications, then that wouldn't really count for much. So we can measure total traffic. We can measure uh, the sort of acceptance rate. Um, we can also, of course, measure, like, the volume of donations that are funneled towards partners. Um, we're proud of all of that, but, again, that's sort of, in a sense – only scratches the surface of getting towards what we're really trying to achieve in terms of um, deeper social change and uh, really raising consciousness. Uh, so for that kind of stuff, we start to look more at the qualitative data, uh, specifically around what volunteers are saying um, and what our partners are saying as well. But uh, in particular, volunteers, what they're saying as they learn when they go through our uh, pre-departure training program, and as they go through, and to most of our volunteers, at the same time that they're working with our partners, they're also conducting research uh, about the core social issues that our partners are addressing. And so what's really 
um, a great indicator for us of our overall success, but is not easily quantified, is like when we see someone who maybe starts out in the pre-departure classroom saying somewhat naive things, uh, often echoing some sort of paternalistic neo-colonial narratives of, oh, I'm excited to go to such and such country and help the poor people there. Uh, but then they end up really reflecting and, and acknowledging some of their own privilege and acknowledging um, some of the deeper causes of whatever issue they might be addressing. So it's no longer just about, oh, these people are illiterate and I'm excited to go teach them English or something, but rather there's a, a deliberate acknowledgement by the volunteer and a sort of documentation of, let's say, for example, um, oh, these people are illiterate because uh, the education system in this country is severely underfunded because the government has been pressured by multinational agencies to withdraw public funding from the education sector because uh, this is what happened in the 1980s with structural adjustment and so on and so forth. So when we see that sort of really nuanced analysis from our volunteers, um, that's a, a much less easily quantifiable, quantifiable but a much more powerful indicator of the types of learning and transformation that we're helping to facilitate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh, that makes a lot of sense. But I guess, like, you know, to follow up on that a little bit, a controversial area in, in overseas relatively short duration volunteering is that some people may argue that the cost of the plane ticket and the travel expenses spent by that volunteer could create more impact if just given directly to the organization and invested directly into the program. I'm just curious, like, what is your opinion on this and how can you make sure that the volunteer gives back more than he or she necessarily takes on an overseas trip? Yeah, that's a really great question and I want to make it very clear that we really um, have built our organization around those critiques of, let's call it voluntourism, or just uh, those critiques of the many ways in which, um, you know, good intentions are not enough. So in other words, we don't see those sorts of critiques as kind of like a parenthetical aside that we have to figure out how to deal with, but really like everything that Oprah is has emerged from and uh, a goal and a vision of really taking those critiques head on. So, much more so than simply wondering, oh, could that dollar of the plane ticket be better spent somewhere else? I'll comment on that in a moment. But I would say more generally, we are acutely aware of the fact that someone going abroad with the intention of helping, um, or for that matter, someone you know, going to the other side of the city where they live um, with the intention of helping, is really meaningless. Like Simply wanting to help and considering yourself a nice, generous person um, is fundamentally useless if you're not... Um, also working towards a deeper understanding of the actual issue that you're trying to create, or excuse me, trying to solve, and the ways in which you might actually be implicated in, in creating that issue. Um, and, you know, so just to give a simple example, it's like, for, rather than romanticize, oh, well, if only they didn't buy a plane ticket and they gave that money to the charity, we can also just look at that and say, well, what if they did give the money to the charity? They give money to, a, you know, anti climate change organization rather than pay for a plane ticket to fly and, you know, visit the rainforest or whatever that's being cut down. But then meanwhile, in every day of their life, they continue um, driving a car that emits a lot of CO2 and not um, being politically engaged and sort of voting or advocating for legislation that seeks to disincentivize CO2 emissions and so on and so forth. Like, even in that case of the person who said, oh, I'm not going to fly around the world. Instead, I'm just going to donate my money. 
you can still say that that donation is somewhat meaningless compared to what the potential impact could be of an actual change in behavior and an actual sort of change in consciousness and political um, engagement. And so my point is that um, the opportunity cost, so to speak, of uh, spending $1,000 on a plane ticket, we can't only ask, oh, well, what if they spent that $1,000 on giving directly? Somehow that would be immediately better. I think the bigger question is, what is the most possible impact that that $1,000 can have um, on, you know, the world, let's say. And I suppose you could say our, our wager, our hope, is that that $1,000 pays off not simply because the impact of that volunteer during their relatively short-term trip is somehow going to be greater than the impact that they would have had or that the $1,000 would have had at the organization. I think that's the wrong calculus. The, the broader question is, what is the impact that that $1,000 will have on that volunteer's entire life as an engaged and more conscious uh, citizen and advocate? And I'm not claiming that we hit that exactly right each time, but I'm saying that's the way we're doing that calculation, you know, is saying um, not just like, oh, well, you know, that $1,000 could have paid for, uh, you know, a 1,000 school lunches. Um, well, it's like, even so, that's still somewhat short-term and superficial, but if instead it can inspire that person to, you know, campaign on a lifelong, um, you know, for over the lifelong duration for social justice in various ways, then to me that's money very well spent. Um, so that may, may seem like a convoluted answer, but bottom line is uh, there's oftentimes no counterfactual, so it's very hard to sort of determine, oh, could, could this money have been better spent some other way? You know, that's a hypothetical. It's very hard to actually measure that. But what I will say is we think of the potential outcome as much greater than, oh, this volunteer was able to help this many people during um, their time abroad. It's a much larger question of um, an investment in their education. And so to say one more thing in that point, again, going back to this kind of mantra of fundamentally own precautions about raising consciousness and it's an educational organization, I mean, you could extend that same logic by saying, geez, look at all the money that we spend in the United States paying for college each year. Wouldn't it just be so much better to take all that money and give it to people who are hungry or who are homeless or whatever? Um, now, don't get me wrong. Maybe in some cases it would. I think a lot of people don't get very good value for what they paid for college. But I think the natural answer to that question would be, look, you know, the reason that it makes sense for a given university or given family to pay tens of thousands of dollars to send their child to college is that hopefully not just that, oh, that's going to pay off in future earnings for that individual, but that is going to pay off in that that individual will become a more engaged and capable and compassionate and caring and competent citizen of the world. And, I mean, if we can't believe in that, then essentially what we're concluding is that any investment in education is fundamentally selfish and uh, I choose not to believe that, you know, and there, there are some ways we can quantify that, you know, those returns to education on the sort of individual versus social level, but there are other ways that that's extremely difficult to quantify, but just intuitively it makes sense that, uh, you know, having a well-educated populace is good for society, not just good for those individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and absolutely, like, if a volunteer goes abroad and it changes his or her perspective and fundamentally throughout the life results in more activism or more social consciousness or actions taken, no, I completely agree with that. 
But yeah, um, you know, especially since Om Prakash's network has grown so significantly over the last, you know, decade, when you think about accepting new partners for both funding and volunteer matching, what are some of the key impact metrics that you are looking for in terms of their performance to determine whether they're really creating change in their communities? And especially since you've supported organizations across geographies with different sectors of focus and different resource levels, I guess, in terms of scale achieved, how do you assess their performance and decide, you know, which ones are worth, you know, featuring versus not? Right. Um, that's a tricky one. And I should make it, I, I should emphasize, like, uh, yeah, our application process is quite competitive. As I said before, we have about 170 partners right now, but we actually only accept uh, about 10% of organizations that apply. So, you know, we, we receive hundreds and hundreds of applications that we turn down. Uh, and so we do have a pretty rigorous, you know, set of standards that we're looking at. Um, in some ways, um, it, we are looking for quantifiable impact of the organizations. Um, but in other ways, we're also looking for sort of like mission and vision alignment. And so the reality is there are some organizations that might be, um, let's say, like higher impact in one sense or another. Um, you know, a larger organization serving a wider um, audience, but they might really not stand to benefit very much from what Omprakash can offer. So, for example, they might not actually have much use for international volunteers, or they might not really have the capacity to host those volunteers, whereas there might be another organization that's a lot smaller, but they have a very well-defined vision for here's how and why we, we want to recruit, um, you know, international interns or volunteers, and here's how we're going to put them to work, and here's how um, we're going to participate in their own, you know, we're going to mentor them and, and make sure that not just that they, like, have a fun time, but actually that they're learning and engaging deeply, um, et cetera. And so, you know, some of the things we look for, in addition to just that, those basic points of, like, being willing and able and, and having a clear vision for why they want to host volunteers in the first place, we also look at questions like, um, you know, is this an organization that basically is participating or is seeking to participate in the, the industry that has emerged around, let's just call it again, like volunteerism? Um, or is this an organization that actually has a real use for people and, and a real vision for how they'll put those people at work within their organization? And that's admittedly a gray area, but I can tell you, when you know it, when you, you know, you, you can tell that difference when you see it. And so, for example, there are a lot of organizations out there that regardless of whatever I think of the, the quality of their programming, it becomes clear when hearing them talk about why they want volunteers, it becomes clear that they basically want volunteers because they see that as a revenue source. Um, and they want to sort of host people and let those people do something that makes them feel good, but they're not really useful in any broader way. And then they pay some fee or they get kind of like, um, you know, pressured either overtly or subtly by the organization to make a big donation at the end, et cetera. And, you know, there's part of me that can empathize and support that as a one way that an organization can seek to have a sustainable uh, income stream. But I, I also think that actually um, that approach leads to pretty inauthentic relationships and ultimately like negative outcomes for everyone. And so we're looking for organizations that really share our vision and values in terms of the types of relationships that they want to be building and so on. Um, so again, like all of that is to say, we're not just looking for, okay, show me the, that you have the biggest impact and then 
you can use our site. Really, we're saying, show me how and why you want to use our site, and then you can use our site. Uh, and that's a pretty pretty important distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And similar to Givology, the idea of volunteering effectively is central to, you know, it seems like your work and our work as well, especially since we're 100% volunteer run. In your opinion, what makes an effective volunteer? Um, well, that's a great question. And, you know, I haven't talked a whole lot yet on this in this conversation about our um, online pre-departure training program, which is called Omprakash Edge. Um, but I would say we, you know, broadly speaking, we tend to spend about 12 weeks um, in the EDGE program training volunteers before they even go abroad. And so, you know, in that sense, we have a lot to say about what makes an effective volunteer. Certainly it takes a lot more than um, just being a nice person who wants to help, or even just it takes more than having a lot of, of technical skills. Um, I think it takes, uh, firstly, a recognition of one's own subject position and, and oftentimes relative privilege and, and power, uh, you know, in relation to the people they're trying to help. And the implications of that sort of reflection can often uh, be that, you know, one is required uh, to really uh, be humble and to listen in a way that uh, might not, you know, you have to work harder to, to really listen to others um, than you would if you weren't making such a dramatic um, cross of power differences and cultural differences. Um, I think that what it really requires is the recognition that, your definition of the good um, or of progress or development or whatever we want to call it, um, your definition of those things is, is yours and has emerged from your own particular social and cultural and historical location. But um, it's quite dangerous, in, in my view, to assume that what you think is good is, is universally agreed upon. And so once you recognize that, I think it naturally... Um, you know, you're more inclined to, to really listen carefully and to sort of listen before you speak and, and think hard before you speak. And uh, so, you know, there's that. Now, broadly speaking, people would refer to that as like, oh, yeah, you have to be culturally competent. But I actually don't really like that term because oftentimes that term is used in a sort of checklist kind of way of like, okay, yeah, make sure you just do the cultural competence workshop and then, you know, you've checked that box. And, oh, make sure, you know, if you're a woman that you don't like wear a short skirt. Um, and you know, these things that are true, I don't disagree, but it's just a somewhat superficial notion of what it means to be culturally competent. And I would say, uh, you know, coming from the standpoint of anthropology, like (laughs) in a certain sense, like all of us are fundamentally culturally incompetent. Um, and we are always viewing the world through, the lenses of our own grinding, as, as one particular anthropologist once said, um, Clifford Geertz. But, like, the point being, it's not about saying, oh, yeah, just, like, take this workshop and then you can set aside your bias. But rather it's about saying, hey, if you spend enough time, you can at least recognize how biased you are. And um, that recognition of bias might not ever allow us to fully transcend it, but we can at least sort of um, have a little bit more humility and perspective as we go about the daily work of trying to build dialogue and understanding across cultures. So it's not any, uh, you know, five-step process towards being a good volunteer or being a, being culturally competent, but it's much more, I think, a lifelong process of um, reflection and listening and, and striving for understanding. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Can you actually tell us a little bit more about Amprakash Edge and, you know, what the curriculum looks like? Sure. So, um, so first of all, I should say that Edge is much more than just like a curriculum. It's a whole dynamic online learning space that we've created for um, training volunteers and not only volunteers who are working with Amprakash partners. Uh, that's how we initially conceived of it, but actually what we started doing is building out customized versions of Edge for all kinds of different audiences, including many people who aren't working with Omprakash partners. Um, but so broadly speaking, it's just an online learning platform for anyone who's prepared to generally go abroad, but actually it's just as relevant for domestic volunteering, but for people who are prepared to, to you know, do good or help others when crossing significant gaps of culture and power. And so what that includes is um, there's a significant mentorship component where students are matched with a mentor there's a whole logistical component where we help students prepare for their trip with visa, vaccinations, passport, et cetera. Um, but then, yeah, the real core of the EDGE program is the pre-departure curriculum and then the, the way that dovetails into an ongoing research project. And so the pre-departure curriculum uh, typically involves three stages, and we do customize this for different audiences. But the first stage is reflection on one's own subject position, one's assumptions, um, essentially, we're asking people, so why do you want to volunteer, you know? How much of this is about just putting something on your resume? Um, how much of this is about um, just feeling good about yourself or in some ways, like, trying to, you know, let yourself off the hook for the, your own privilege, et cetera? Um, then, so we really encourage that reflection. Um, and then the, the middle section is about um, understanding the context that you're preparing to enter. And that's true in a local and regional sense, but it's also true in a, in a global sense. of like, let's get some conversation going about the current context of global economic inequality and environmental inequality. And let's understand some of the major discussions going on in the field of um, development studies or whatever it may be, but the, the different um, perspectives about what should be the role of the government and what should be the role of the market and what should be the role of the third sector and so on in promoting social welfare around the world. And how do we measure that in the first place? Is this about the, um, you know, increasing GDP or is this about the human development index or uh, what is this, the gender development index or, you know, what are the blind spots of all of these different metrics, et cetera. So we're giving people this kind of broad, you could almost call it like a crash course in, in development studies. Um, and then the third segment of the pre-departure curriculum, we start to teach students some uh, qualitative research methods and methodologies uh, with the hope that ultimately we're inspiring students to recognize that the most transformative thing they can do is not go abroad and help someone in some sort of superficial and probably patronizing way, uh, but it's actually to go abroad and learn and really learn deeply, not to learn in some, again, superficial way of like, oh, I learned the you know, national anthem of such and such country, but really to learn what are the deeper causes um, and what are different, for the, the divergent perspectives about this particular social issue. Um, and so we're, try, we're giving students the methodological skills that, so that they can go abroad and not just kind of keep a blog about here's what I ate for breakfast today, um, but keep a blog, we call it a record of perspectives actually, where they are essentially assuming the the role of a qualitative researcher day in and day out and documenting what is going on um, in the day-to-day, -day, in, the, in the health clinic, in the school, in the library, in the sports um, uh, program, whatever it may be where they're working, uh, documenting the perspectives of 
sure, the organizational director, but also the various uh, beneficiaries of the organization and the person who, you know, sweeps the floors at the organization and really trying to build a, a really nuanced and sort of polyvocal um, picture of or, uh, or depiction of what is going on in that place so that at the end of all this, um, you know, so that's the pre-departure training, and then they go abroad and they do that. They, they build this record of perspectives, which you can sort of think of as like a digital research repository with photos, text, you know, oral narratives, et cetera. Um, and so then, ideally, they come home, and they don't just say, oh, I, it was so great, you know, my $1,000 plane ticket was worth it because I helped these students. I taught them English for two months or whatever. Um, but rather, they say, wow, it was so worth it because look how much I learned and look at, I've now like sort of built this, uh, you know, they, they synthesize that into the, a final capstone project, which can take many forms, but ultimately it becomes sort of a tool for further advocacy and learning. And they share that final product with their host organization and with future volunteers and so on. And again, that's where that sort of return on investment of their plane ticket really comes in is not like how many people they help, but is how much they've learned and how much they're able with the support of Oprakash to sort of um, share that learning with a broader audience who can be inspired by it and, you know, use that to inform future action of their own. Yeah, well, that, that makes a lot and of so sense. And so that's, yeah, yeah so, so the EDGE program um, sort of enables all of that from start to finish, you know, beginning with the logistics and the mentorship, but then really all the way through the training and the research and, and the, the showcasing of the work at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, my last question is, what are your objectives for Om Prakash in the next five years to come and some of your biggest opportunities and challenges ahead? Well, um, I mentioned this a little bit, but, uh, you know, we're partnering a lot with universities right now. And so we are basically working with universities to help them build their own programs around the model that I just described. And so to put that more boldly, we want to reshape what, quote, unquote, global engagement looks like in higher education uh, in the United States, but also around the world. And this isn't exclusively limited to higher education. We want to do the same thing ultimately, uh, you know, at the secondary level and, um, you know, for graduate students or whatever it may be. But in particular right now, I just think if you, just to make it, the problem feel a little more uh, kind of contained, if you look at um, the mission statement of every university in the United States, um, I guarantee you, you will find some sort of lip service paid to the idea of, you know, creating global citizens or preparing people for, you know, a global economy or whatever it may be. Um, and frankly, I think that very often the universities are, are quite limited in their ability to do that, especially in their ability to do that in a way that is accessible to all students. Um, and it's precisely because of the same dominant paradigm that I mentioned before. Of typically, um, you know, when most institutions or individuals are looking for these international volunteering or service learning opportunities, they're constrained to this kind of expensive chaperone group trip model. And so we really want to transform that paradigm uh, and make that this sort of immersive global experience with really deep critical reflection uh, we want to make that accessible to everyone, and we want to make that sort of fundamental to what it means to be, um, you know, let's say a college graduate or just to, to be someone who has gained a, quote, unquote, global experience um, in the United States and beyond. So 
that feels like a pretty um, bold and exciting goal. Uh, right now we're working with about 10 universities, but there are thousands more <laughs> that we'd like to be working with. Um, and then beyond universities, you know, I could really say pretty much the exact same thing for various different, like, nonprofit scholarship programs and so on and so forth, but pretty much any, um, the, the many different institutions and organizations that are out there and are saying, oh, we're trying to kind of create the next generation of global citizens who understand global problems and so on and so forth, and we do that by facilitating international travel and service, we really believe that we've come up with a model for making that kind of thing more ethical, more affordable, and more impactful. And so we want to expand that as broadly as we can. Um, obviously, a huge part of that is also not just about benefiting the students who participate, but it's about benefiting the partner organizations in our network who I think have just as much to gain um, uh, from the, you know, the services we offer. So, you know, there are a million different things that make that very challenging, not the least of which is that um, there's a lot of sort of inertia around the type of programming I just described, and there are a lot of people with vested interests, whether that's faculty members or donors or whatever. But, you know, when you approach a university and you say, hey, you know, with all due respect, I think the way you're currently doing things is not very good, and I think we can help you make it better. Um, <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, people respond well to that, and sometimes I'm, I'm able to obviously make a slightly more compelling sales pitch than that, but other times, you know, we just get sort of stonewalled because there's a lot of ego involved and a lot of people who say, no, this is already the way we're doing it. And frankly, why should we, um, why should we do it differently? Our, you know, our alumni love it. Our donors love it. Uh, there's this, as I said, there's this kind of inertia around the fact uh, that, and a lot of this does get back to your theme of sort of metrics. But frankly, a lot of people out there, it, all the way up to like university presidents and deans and provosts and whatever, they basically are saying, we want to have the greatest number of students go to the greatest number of countries, you know, next year. And these broader questions about what kind of work are they really doing and what are they actually learning, those questions are not being asked very often. And so it's hard to convince someone to change when in their mind there's not a problem, you know. But in our mind, a university that says, oh, we're so proud, you know, 50 of our students did an international, or, you know, 500 of our students did, did an international volunteer trip last year, you know, there are a lot of people both within the university and, and beyond it who would say, oh, that's so great, that's so amazing. And our stance is like, well, <laughs> what did they actually do? Because if what they did was like do a short-term, you know, a seven-day tri group trip somewhere where they got, they paid a ton of money, lower-income students couldn't even afford to go, and the students who did go ended up doing some totally superficial thing like paint a fence or dig a ditch but, and didn't really learn anything about the context they were entering, and actually came home with some of their own stereotypes and biases having been reinforced um, and their own sort of white savior complex having been reinforced, then quite possibly, despite your metrics, you know, you've done more harm than good. Um, or you certainly haven't come close to, like, achieving your mission of creating leaders for the world's future or whatever it may be. Um, but so my point being is that often, as far as what's the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge is basically convincing people that despite their metrics that they might be so proud of, very often the existing status quo for global engagement is quite vacuous in terms of actual uh, learning that's happening and, and is quite problematic on an ethical level as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, one challenge among many, but that's a, that's a pretty profound one. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today in our podcast series. We really, really appreciate it. 
It's totally my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity, and um, I'm really uh, happy to be able to be a part of it.